Why should you visit Kings Island? Do it because less time planning means more time for this. Do it to take a one-day family vacation. Do it to catch a serious case of the giggles together. And of course, do it to eat a funnel cake the size of your face. Because here at Kings Island, doing something just for the fun of it is all the reason you need. Right now, everyone pays kids price. Kings Island tickets just $45 online. When you sign up for BP Me Rewards, you can get five cents off every gallon of gas every time at BP or Amico stations. That means more savings and more whatever you'd like to use your savings on. So treat yourself. It's on us. Visit bp.com slash save to learn more. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All-Hit Radio! Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the iHeart Radio System, Mutual Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, and of course on the Exxon Broadcast Network. If you'd like to send an email, Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And to get all the great programming we have available for you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour is Jonathan Maybury. He is a New York Times bestselling author, five-time Bram Stoker Award winner, and comic book writer. He writes in multiple genres, including suspense, thriller, horror, science fiction, fantasy, and action for adults, teens, and middle grade. Hmm. His works include Joe Ledger, Thrillers, X-Files, Origins, Devil's Advocate, Mars One, and many others. Several of his works are in the development for film and TV. He is the editor of the high-profile anthologies, including The X-Files, V-Wars, Scary Out There, Out of Tune, Baker Street Irregulars, Night of the Living Dead, and others. He lives in Del Mar, California. His website is Jonathan mayberry.com and jonathan welcome to the exxon well, thanks for having me on uh wow how do you find any time for jonathan with everything you do uh well you know it's it's writing is my day job so you know i, I do it 
eight hours a day, nine hours a day, and then I take off nights and weekends. There you, you go. Know? So it's I actually come from work, so to speak. <laughs> Listen, what was it that uh, that brought you to writing about the uh, you know the science fiction, horror, thrillers, uh, suspense, and so on? Well, in a way, I was kind of born into it. My uh, grandmother, who partly raised me, was uh, a big believer in what she called the larger world. Um, everything that we would call supernatural or preternatural mm-hmm. was was part of her belief systems. Kind of like the, if you can imagine Luna Lovegood from the Harry Potter stories as an old lady. That's that's her. And um, it, it kind of encouraged me to keep an open mind and to look beyond. And I've, I've done a lot of research on that over the years. But at the same time, I was always fascinated by science. And uh, when I was a kid, when I was uh, in middle school, I got mm-hmm. to know and be mentored by uh, some top science fiction writers, including Richard Matheson, Arthur C. Clarke, and Ray Bradbury. And um, that deepened my my uh, desire to know more about science and also to combine that with the fiction that I've always wanted to write. How far is science from fiction? Well, good. I think good science fiction is a half step away. Um, I mean, you can go with speculative fiction, which tends to go a little further out, but mm-hmm. I like my science fiction to be as real as possible. There's kind of an old saying, con man saying, actually, that applies to fiction. Use nine truths to tell one lie. Well, in fiction, we, we, we tend to use a big foundation of, of real science to then sell the science fiction, and it makes it harder to uh, uh, step away or di- discount the, the fiction part of it because it is an extension of the science that, that's out there. Why do you think the the uh, the present genre is so popular with with people of all ages these days? You know, they're on TV. You've got Night of the Living Dead. You've got zombies. You've got vampires. You've got UFOs. You've got aliens. What do you think the attraction is? Well, there's different attractions for different things. I mean, vampires are are part of our you know hope that we can live forever, and never get sick, always right. stay pretty. But zombies, which is you know something I write about quite often. Um, they, they tend to be a stand-in, a metaphor for anything that we're afraid of. It's easier to tell a story about your fears if you use a construct like a zombie than if you're actually talking about um, fear of what's happening in politics, fear, fear of what's happening in medicine, mm-hmm. uh, personal fears. The zombies allow a, a kind of a canvas. We understand that it's about fear, so then we can explore an endless number of stories about people who then have to cope with fear. So do you think that uh, the current interest in what you and I were talking about is a way of people expressing themselves and dealing with the day-to-day problems that we all face? Absolutely. Uh, Real life doesn't always have a third act, and it doesn't always have a predictable ending. So Mm -hmm. if we explore real-world problems uh, using fiction, we can kind of see how things might work out. Sometimes that shows us you know solutions we can try or encourages us to be courageous and sometimes it kind of reinforces our belief that things are not going to work out well but it, it does allow us to to play what if with the bigger issues that that are that are in our real lives jonathan stand by you and i have to take our first break Nation. jonathan mayberry is our special guest www.jonathanmayberry.com and we'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. This 
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back, everyone. Jonathan Mayberry is our special guest, and you can find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for his name, all you need to do is spell it right. Jonathan Mayberry, and Mayberry is M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. You recently co-edited a zombie anthology with the great, late uh, George Romero. What was that like? Uh, that was a kind of a lifelong dream come true. I had, as a 10-year-old, I had uh, snuck into the movie theater to see the world premiere of Night of the Living Dead back in 1968. Mm-hmm. And have been fascinated by that whole world and, and the subsequent movies and all the fiction, everything else that's followed it. And I've always, I, you know, idolized uh, George Romero and then roll forward some years later. And I, I thought, well, why not try to do a project with him? So I, I got him on the phone um, and I said, look, I, you know, I love the, uh, the project. I, I wrote a novel that, that I thought was, would be kind of an homage to you and your books. And mm-hmm. he surprised me by saying he had read it and actually loved that book, which was called Dead of Night. And I said, I'd love to do an anthology that explored what else was going on in the 48 hours surrounding Night of the Living Dead. And he was extremely interested in, in participating. So he asked to be co-editor, which mm-hmm. I was certainly happy about. He wanted to write a story for me. Um, and then he asked if I would write a story that officially connected my Dead of Night book to Night of the Living Dead. Because as he saw it, that was a more valid scientific explanation for the zombie apocalypse than the radiation from a returning space probe that he used in his uh, his movie. Uh, the process was was a lot of fun. We uh, we worked really well together. We became good friends, and uh, unfortunately, he passed only a few days, like four days after the book came out, and it was his last completed project. So uh, it was uh, bittersweet that that it, it came out and has, has been getting the recognition it has. Uh, because I really wish George was here to celebrate it with us. Now, you are saying that the zombie apocalypse, in according to his books, was caused by a returning space probe. How does yours differ from his? Well, this, as much as I love the movie, you can't really build a good uh, and compelling scientific argument for radiation from one space probe causing a problem around the world. It, right. just, it just doesn't work. 
Um, so what I did is I, I looked, I, I talked to a lot of scientists, friends of mine, the people I use for my Joe Ledger thrillers when mm -hmm. I'm researching bioweapons, and came up, they helped me come up with a, a, a pathogen a, um, somewhat designed by nature, but also enhanced by uh, bioweapons research that's based on parasites, the green jewel wasp and toxoplasma, a few others that um, are known to exist in nature where in, insects can essentially infect others with, uh, actually they inject their larvae, and that rewrites the, the behavioral patterns of those, of those uh, hosts so that they essentially will do anything to protect the larva inside them, including killing and eating their own kind. Wow. So I kind of used that as a basis for creating this pathogen, and it's alarmingly close to something that might actually work. And um, we, uh, uh, George was very happy to have something that he could point to and say, yes, see, it's possible. Why zombies? Well, uh, again, zombies, unlike most monsters, zombies have no personality. So in zombie stories, when mm -hmm. you introduce the zombie, we kind of get right away who and what they are. They're undead corpses that feast on the living. We don't need to know a lot more about them. Mm -hmm. So once introduced, they represent a massive shared catastrophe, something that breaks down the infrastructure, strips away the affect of who we pretend to be in daily life and leaves us who we actually are. So it allows writers to then tell stories about ordinary people in crisis, and during that crisis, they have to discover who and what they are, which is often much different than the roles they play in day-to-day -day life. So it's an endless um, uh, opportunity for original storytelling with real human drama. And uh, uh, so many different writers have brought so many original types of storytelling to that that it's not going to be a genre that's going to drive and go away. You know, the word zombie seems to have two meanings, one tied to voodoo and the other tied to pop, cul uh, pop culture. Are these all the same uh, creatures, or are they different creatures, and, and if so, how? They're absolutely different creatures. George never intended his monsters to be zombies. See, he originally tried to get the film rights to I Am Legend, Richard Matheson's vampire apocalypse book, but they were tied up. So he decided that instead of vampires, he would use ghouls, which are... Um, an anglicized word based on the Algul, an Arabian mm -hmm. des desert demon that was flesh-eating monster returned from the dead. So his, his monsters were flesh-eating ghouls. It wasn't until um, the movies were in distribution in Europe that the European, the Italian film distributors, decided to call them zombies. And the name stuck. And George fought it for years. They're not, they were not to him zombies because zombies are a particular thing in Haitian folklore. Exactly. Um, and these are not them, but the names stuck. And now we, we, you know, we constantly have to explain that they're not the same thing. And when I was, I did a nonfiction book some years ago called Zombie CSU, The Forensics of the Living Dead, which was where I interviewed hundreds of experts in the real world about how we might react should Night of the Living Dead happen. Mm -hmm. And one of the experts I talked to was Wade Davis, the ethnobotanist who had gone down to Haiti and figured out what was, you know, how the zombies operate. And it turned out to be a chemical compound, a tetrodotoxin from puffer fish and uh, something from the skin of a tree frog and so on that puts someone in a very almost hypnotic, suggestive state. So that's the original true zombie. The zo but when you talk pop culture, everyone has come to use the word zombie to describe the fleshing ghouls. And now it's inextricable, even though they're not the folkloric version. It's amazing because I know so many people who 
who will just sit there for hours and hours and watch these zombie movies. And I, I hate to say it, but I kind of watch it and say, okay, so what? <laughs> well, again, the story is about people in crisis, yeah. and that is the basis for all human drama. Every bit of drama that's ever been is about someone in some kind mm -hmm. of crisis, whether it's emotional, existential, political, you know, whatever. So zombie stories, if you, you know, in most zombie stories, you're very rarely after they're introduced, they kind of fade to the background. Yeah. They become less important. They just set the stage for drama. So that's why zombies. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you've also been involved in the X-File world for a matter of time now. How did that come about, and uh, what have you been doing? Well, um, a friend of mine, Ted Adams, is the CEO of IDW Comics, and for years they've been doing the official continuation of the X-Files in comic book form. So Ted and I were having lunch one day, and we started talking about uh, maybe doing some prose anthology, because I, you know, even though I've written comics, I tend to do more stuff in, in prose. Mm -hmm. So you know, we talked about maybe doing an X-Files anthology, and we reached out to Chris Carter, um, the creator of X-Files. Yeah, great guy. Uh, yeah, great guy. And at first, he was reluctant because this is before they renewed the show. He said, nobody remembers the X-Files anymore. Oh, wow. He, he kind of laughed like, everybody remembers the X-Files. That's right. So he kind of challenged me to say, you know, if you can get enough big-ticket you know, big writers, um, I'll, I'll, you know, we can discuss doing an anthology. We called him back later that same afternoon with 45 top writers who were all eager to do X-Files wow. stories. So he green, greenlit three anthologies, and we did uh, we did them. They came out. They were they were really popular, very successful. And then while we were doing that, I, I had another idea of, of maybe exploring the story of, of Scully and Mulder. Mm -hmm. So I talked to my friend, Kelly Garcia, uh, who had, uh, was a bestseller for her Beautiful Creatures novels, and then I uh, got permission from Chris Carter to go out and shop uh, teen novels about Teenage Scully and Mulder, not together because they didn't meet to show. But right. she would write the Mulder story, and I would write the Dana Scully story, and um, they got that got picked up right away, got snapped up, and those books came out in January. And um, they are, according to Chris Carter, the official backstory of Mulder, uh, Mulder and Scully. Why do you think the X Files has been such a such a hit? And you know what? Gosh, even today, it's it's living well in reruns, and of course, the X Files movies and. Uh, even though, even though uh, David Duchovny has gone away from the X-Files, he's still regarded as the X-Men. Actually, he's not going away. He, you know, we, we, they had season 10, and they're going to film season 11. And he and Gillian Anderson just recorded a couple of audiobooks of new X-Files stories. So he's very much back in the world of the X-Files. And that show speaks to a lot of our need to try to understand the mysteries we see around us all the time. Mm -hmm. Even the most skeptical of people wonders what's out there what's what's beyond the sh uh, the dark what's you know what what's up in the skies what what's what's behind that door we always wonder and the x-files took so many of those things and tried to explore possibilities for what's there you know not always in in ways that everybody agreed with mm -hmm. but often in intriguing ways and it kept the conversation about the larger world going, and it still does. You know, but is is the X Files and the science fiction genre a way of escaping reality? Um, yes and no. It, you can do that with science fiction, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's also a way of exploring uh, the the nature of these things, the the information of these things, and sharing it. Because sadly, more people will watch 
or read fiction than will read nonfiction. Definitely. So you can have a learned book on UFOs or learn a book on, a, on an urban legend or phenomenon, mm-hmm. and a, yeah, a portion of the audience will read it, but 50 times as many people will see a movie about it or watch a TV show about it. So you can seed those real conversations about phenomenon that, that do tr- you know uh, make us curious or trouble us. It, you can seed it out to the public and start those conversations through fiction, and that's, that's what fiction's always done. Well, you know, there there are certain times and certain topics within the science fiction genre that I equate to Santa Claus. Everybody loves Christmas, but Christmas comes once a year. Fair enough. Yeah. But not all. I mean, um, so, some science fiction and fantasy is by its by intention escapism. Mm-hmm. Right. It has no no in, intent of doing anything else. But then you get stuff, you know, stories like Andromeda Strain, stories like, um, well, like the X Files. Yeah. Where there is a there there is a desire to entertain, but at the same time they do want to start real conversations with people, and it's not just an escapist story. It's it's a candy coating over the truth, and sometimes that's the only way in which somebody will will take a bite of the truth. But when you look at the 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 topics that are talked about in the X Files, nothing has changed over the last what seventy years. There's no proof of, ex- of extraterrestrial existence. There's no proof of Bigfoot. It's it's all hypothetical. Yeah, it is hypothetical. But then again, it's not the not the job of of a TV series to prove it. Mm-hmm. It's a job of it to keep the conversation going. The people who are in positions to prove it or to discover the proof, that's their job. And the fact that the the public is more aware of these things because of shows like the X File keeps them, the the the, the truth seekers, mm-hmm. more visibly in the public eye. It Wait. helps them in their their quest to find real answers and it may take a lot of time but at least the conversation hasn't gone away it hasn't people haven't forgotten that this that these are topics we want answers to i I understand that but you know statistics show that the audience when it comes to shows like the x-files and all the other realities or so-called reality shows is starting to fall it fell because the show went off the air or is or is it it fell because the topic could not be authenticated one way or another in, in cases, some, sometimes that's true. Mm-hmm. And there are times we, we get a little fatigue when we see 50 Bigfoot movies and they all come back and they don't, never find anything. Right. Some things may not be there to be found. Um, some things, there may be very good campaigns of obfuscation. Like if there are UFOs, and I'm, I'm kind of leaning toward the, the fact that something is out there, mm-hmm. and if the military is trying to hide it, they have the resources to hide it. But don't they also uh, have the right to hide it? They may have the right to hide it, absolutely. All right, stand by. We'll be back on the other side of this news break. ExoNation Jonathan Mayberry is our guest. His website is www.jonathanmayberry.com, and Mayberry is M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. That's jonathanmayberry.com. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, 
Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Jonathan Mayberry is our guest this hour, ExoNation, uh, www.jonathanmayberry.com. Um, you know, I've been doing this show 26 years, five nights a week. And over the 26 years, nothing has changed. You know, the, the audience has changed as people come in and out of the age group that listen to this type of broadcast. But when it comes to actual physical evidence or the difference of investigation or the the um, the discoveries into the topics that we talk about, nothing has changed. So why do people keep the interest in it? I think a lot of people believe that, that those answers are out there. And it, it may take um, new uh, discoveries in science mm-hmm. to be able to prove some of this. Uh, you know, we're looking into quantum, science, quantum physics a lot mm-hmm. more than we had uh, over the last 50 years. Um, we're discovering more about the, the structure and nature of the universe we're looking into interdimensional uh, uh, existence. So it's it, it may be that we're simply too early in the science to be able to figure it out ourselves, but we're getting there. We're working on it. And people have believed in things in, in the larger world since there have been people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, even my friends who are, who are fierce atheists tend to proselytize atheism with the same passion that somebody proselytizes a religion. So there is a desire even within them to believe something. And I've seen those same people, you know, knock wood or pick up a, a heads up penny. Mm-hmm. So on some level, even if they're not aware of it, they ha- there is still that that uh, primitive belief in the larger world. I, I think we will find something at some point. I just don't know what and when, but I'm, I'm optimistic. But what happens if we don't? Then we don't. Then we Then there will have to be a major realigning of our cultural thinking. And that would, that, and we're already seeing that. You know, over the last century, we, mm-hmm. we've seen uh, hardcore science come up against uh, religion in ways that sometimes abrades one or the other. Uh, they, they they tend to become polar opposites and, and often discount each other. But there are some people who are looking for the ways in which those two extremes relate. Um, if they don't, if we don't find something, I doubt it's going to change uh, things very quickly because people are resistant even to disbelieving as, as much as they're also resistant to believing in things they can't yet prove. Um, we're not, we're not going to stop the conversation anytime soon. We well, really aren't. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said it was the people who write about the paranormal, the, the extraordinary and those topics that are very hard to believe who are keeping the belief alive in order to sell their products. How do you- um, that's possible. There are people who, use anything as a profit maker mm-hmm. um even people who believe deeply in it not everyone is just there as a huckster but mm-hmm. there are hucksters no question about it however i don't think that's something you can lay blame on the science fiction community uh for we're not in this to uh create belief we're in that we're in this to entertain and perpetuate a, con- a conversation but but when um, you say you're, you're there to entertain I, where does I, entertainment and and the and the rea- uh, and the want to 
give positive ideas, where's the line of separation there? Because one, entertainment means that you're there to entertain and to make a profit from it by by going after it in a very diligent manner and saying, all right, this is what I believe in and this is why and this is what I'm looking for. There's, you know, there's two different uh, schools of thought here. Um, there's possibly more than two. I mean, you think of the, the long history of storytellers mm-hmm. that we've had uh, going back to, you know, people sitting around a campfire yeah. in a, in a cave. Um, people tell stories, even if it's just about that day's hunt for a buffalo, mm-hmm. they're going to tell it in an entertaining way. And maybe the people in the cave haven't seen the thing they hunted. And maybe uh, they, they, that's the way of also educating them about the possibilities of what's out there. Storytelling is not the same thing as classroom. Classroom's obligation is to uh, tell the truth in as clear and unambiguous a way as possible. Storytelling is a way of sparking the imagination to believe that things are possible, and then maybe maybe that will encourage someone to want to go and, and, and prove it empirically. But it isn't the obligation of storytelling to perpetuate uh, the scientific process. That's not its job. Its job is to entertain and to uh, kind of pique the imagination. What you do with that imagination mm-hmm. is on you, not on the storyteller. So, in your opinion, is it ethical for storytellers to to lead the reader down the garden path? Sure, because they're not saying this is true. They're saying this is made up. So it's not a con game. Uh, when, I, when I write a story about vampires, mm-hmm. I don't believe in vampires. Okay. However, it is pretty clear that the vampire is a metaphor for something else. So this something else that it's a metaphor uh, for is the thing that I want to have the conversation about. But it's pretty clear, it's pretty, pretty obvious that we're not going to have that conversation. If I want to talk about, uh, for example, rape or sexual abuse or mm-hmm. you know, any forced taking of something, right. that's an awkward conversation people won't want to have. But if you talk about vampirism, which is the same thing, it's the metaphor for that, we can have that conversation. We can talk about that. And, and if you write it well enough... And if the reader is perceptive enough, and if the, the the writing and the perception meet somewhere, then you get the point across without having to, to preach. I, I kind of disagree with you there, because I believe that people in today's society are able to cope with the the reality of subjects such as rape. That it oh, doesn't have to be, able, that it doesn't have to be I, into I, a. I didn't say, hold on, I did not say they're not able to cope with it. I said they're not willing to have the conversation as. Uh, that's rhetoric. that's where I disagree with you. I think they are. I, see, I, again, I disagree. I taught women's self-defense for thirty years mm-hmm. at the university level and the community level. Right. I know for a fact. I'm an expert on that subject. I know for a fact people are not going to have that conversation as often, as deeply, uh, and and as passionately. If the conversation stays on the subject of rape, some will, but not the larger audience. They find it uncomfortable. They may they may take that and go have a, a private conversation or a series of private conversations, mm-hmm. but it's not going to become the national conversation, um, you know, with as large a group as it would if you were telling it in a vampire story. But, but you see, it's it it's not story. it's not going to get solved if you keep on putting it into storybook form. It'll only be solved if you tell it the way it is. I absolutely disagree with you on that. We, we know for a fact that stories uh, have led people to to moments of realization where they have gone out and then done something about it. I mean, going back to the fables, the fables were all moral stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, e- even Shakespeare, there, there's, there's people who've, who have written 
volumes on the, the moral implications of, of Romeo and Juliet or the immoral implications of Romeo and Juliet. Right. It creates discussions and it does lead to action. So I disagree May- that, that fiction does not have an impact on people. I, not in today's society. In today's society, people want the truth. They want facts. This is why the news is, is, is so, you know, is so important. People watch the news now more than any other program. People listen to news channels and watch news channels more than any other channel because they want the truth. They, they don't want the storybook uh, version anymore. Uh, I, 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 you're speaking in absolutes, and, and it's not an absolute. It's not one or the other. It's both. They want the news, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the news. I, mm-hmm. I listen to news all the time. I watch. I, I have news feeds. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also want to explore fiction because fiction allows for what-if alternatives, what-if uh, third acts that we don't have necessarily in the real world. It allows us to explore the possibilities of what could happen. But isn't fiction not also really an escape from reality? What does happen. But isn't fiction also an escape from reality? No, not always. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. It is not an absolute one or the other. And that, that's, that's kind of central to the conversation here. Mm-hmm. Fiction is not the antithesis of fact and conversation. It is a parallel conversation allowing you to go from one to the other and get value from both. Okay. How has the, uh, the, uh, the mode of self-publishing affected authors like yourself you know well i self-publish so i I don't have a lot of experience with Mm -hmm. it i know that it's allowed people to to get out there when they couldn't before because publishing only has limited numbers of has limited resources and it's the job of publishing to publish things they think will sell multiple copies um that said uh self-publishing has allowed people to get out there with their stories i i find it is of most value with people who have um say memoirs or um, family histories or things where there isn't a big commercial market for mm-hmm. it, but the story is still of value to some. Um, I think it's great for that. And for, for people who want to have absolute control over their work and don't want anyone else to touch it or tamper with it, that's fine. Um, but I, I'd like to see writers get paid for the work they do. So I'm, I'm more of a fan of conventional publishing. But the fact that conventional publishing isn't getting into as many bookstores anymore, that the electronic uh, the electronic sales are certainly starting to outweigh the the print copies, especially due to the fact that there are 22,000 new publications that are published in the States each and every month. Right. And uh, when it comes to, well, again, speaking of fiction, mm-hmm. print outweighs uh, ebook by four to one. Really? Um, yeah, definitely. We thought that that ebook was going to sweep past print, mm-hmm. and it really hasn't. It does really well in nonfiction because a lot of nonfiction books they want to be able to to you want to get it fast you want to get it current right and an ebook can get out there really fast but in fiction people still love the idea of holding a book then how come newspapers are failing so drastically the print versions <sighs> because newspapers rely on immediacy and immediacy is is more possible in digital um than, than it is in in print you you can get i can get up to the minute news from uh, Wall Street Journal sure. or or uh, uh, any newsfeed or any of those things, I get those. You know, as we've been sitting here, I've had a couple of things pop across my screen mm-hmm. that are newscast. I couldn't get that get anything that fast from print. Um, but fiction is not immediate. Fiction is, you know, I, I'll still go out and buy a, a physical book.
What's the reasoning behind it? I mean, besides the fact that you're you're a fan of fiction, um, you know, for one thing, the the ebooks are a lot cheaper. You can, yes. you know, so in in today's economy, isn't isn't that a major factor? Sure, it is, and uh, also weight is an issue. When I, I since I yeah. I'm booked for very very often, I often take my Kindle with me, mm-hmm. um, or read my iPad or whatever. So for travelers, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, you don't have to drag a bunch of books around. If I'm if I'm doing research while on tour, I can have hundreds of, of research books mm-hmm. and magazines on my on my uh, iPad and not have to worry about the weight. Yeah, and, um, and but, I, I understand but, it's much better for authors too because uh, the number of publishers that just send us links to the online book instead of five, ten years ago, we used to get inundated with 30, 40 books a week. Now yeah. we just get 30, 40 links a week. Yeah, and then they, but there are problems with that too. Um, one of the things like Amazon is is monetizing how people read their ebooks. So yeah. uh, if you only read a certain number of pages, uh, the author only gets paid a percentage of the book sale because of that. Mm-hmm. Things like that are are, are kind of take away the value of ebooks for authors. It's it's good for the reader. It's not good for the writer sometimes. Well, it's no different than the uh, than the recording industry. You know, instead of buying a whole album, you just buy one cut. Yes, and at the end and of the day, isn't it about the consumer or is it about the author? Uh, unfortunately, right now it's about the consumer because the, the the companies are leaning toward consumer immediate consumer dollars a little yeah. more than they, they are for the artists who produce the material, and that's something they haven't sorted out yet. And I'm not there's going to be a crisis at one point where it's just going to become economically infeasible to become a professional unless you're the one vending your own your own work. But we're not there quite yet, thank God. All right, stand by. We've got to take our final break. Exxon Nation, Jonathan Mayberry is our guest. And if you'd like to find out more about Jonathan and the great works that he does, www.jonathanmayberry.com. And Mayberry is M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. We'll be back on the other side of this break. And uh, the X Chronicles newspaper is available for this month at www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. We'll be back. Don't go away. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. 
Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Exonation Jonathan Mayberry is our guest, www.jonathanmayberry.com. Jonathan, what are your favorite monsters or supernatural legends from folklore? Uh, I think my all-time favorite is the Ben and Dante. It's a werewolf subtype from Livonia and a few other places in, in uh, Western Europe. Um, it's a, it, these are families that for centuries claim that they, they're, they turn into werewolves and mm-hmm. fight monsters on the side of the good guys, on the side of heaven. And I think it's kind of a cool legend because it's, it's the exact opposite of, of most of the standard European uh, werewolf legends, which are uh, pretty clearly the way in which uh, they tried to explain things like serial killers. Um, but the, these were good guys, and uh, I've based some of my fictional uh, characters on that type of, of werewolf. So they're my favorite. Um, my producer uh, just sent me a, a, a note saying that uh, he had read somewhere, or, or I don't know where he got it, that uh, one of the possibilities for an actual zombie apocalypse would be the the spread of rabies. Any idea on that? Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny. I, I've written about that, too. Uh, there was a series of movies called Wreck, as sure for record, about uh, a weaponized rabies strain creating mm-hmm. zombies, and it was pretty pretty scary stuff. The uh, the problem with rabies, as with most other kinds of, of uh, diseases that cause aggressive or, or, or uh, manic behavior, is that there is an uh, the, the incubation period is very short. Nature cannot amp up the incubation period fast enough. There's nothing in nature that would. So it would have to be something that would be tweaked in a, in a bioweapons lab for whatever reason. Um, that, and that's kind of the problem we get to with a lot of things that people say would, mm-hmm. would make a good uh, zombie apocalypse. Nature, Mother Nature can get really cranky at times, yeah. but not that fast. She isn't fast. I mean, even, even something like Ebola doesn't spread so fast it becomes wildfire. It's mm-hmm. nasty if you catch it but it doesn't spread fast enough for it to become an outbreak like we see in 28 Days Later or one of the zombie films. And we can all be happy about that. And rightfully so. Uh, what do you, you know, do you believe in the supernatural? I do, but I don't know what it is. I believe in the larger world, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know exactly what it means. My, I kind of share my grandmother's belief that the things that, that some people call supernatural or preternatural are, are possibly things beyond our understanding, current understanding of science, things we may eventually uh, be able to measure, meter, and explain. For example, ghosts. You know, my grandmother thought that ghosts were not the spirits of dead people, mm-hmm. but thing, you know, people wandering from one dimension to another or visions you know, of people in other dimensions. And that sounds as reasonable to me as, as, as you know, the spirit of a dead person. Um, so I do believe in, in the possibility of it. I just don't know what it is. How about UFOs? Definitely believe there's something out there. Um, you know, that, that whole thing, I think it's Blake's equation talking about how many likely planets or how many likely civilizations there are in, in our, our galaxy, um, that, that, that could have intelligent life. It just seems like a lot of wasted space if there's nothing out there. Do I believe they've, they've reached us? Possibly. Um, do I, you know, most of what I think are, uh, labeled as UFOs are probably actually experimental aircraft or, or bad reporting or, you know, whatever. 
but there's still some that that kind of make you go, hmm, what is that? Um, in my book, Extinction Machine, which is in development for film, uh, one of the theories I floated was that if aliens did contact us or, or did reach Earth, and if say we had recovered a crashed vehicle, the odds on us being un being able to understand the the design philosophy of their ship would be akin to um, say having someone as brilliant as Leonardo da Vinci finding a nuclear mm -hmm. submarine. He wouldn't know what to do with it. No matter how smart he was, there are too many things in there that have no corollary to anything that he would have understood at that time. So it may, you know, if we have recovered a UFO, it may take us centuries before we figure out how it works. And, you know, I, so I've written about that as a possibility, and it feels a little likely to me. What is your opinion on the Roswell crash of 1947? I would like it to be true. I don't know. Um because there have been so many things written about it. Mm -hmm. I guess one of my problems with a lot of um, ufology is that people will, will get a certain amount of information, either in a witness report or something, and instead of saying, okay, this is anomalous and this is possibly extraterrestrial, they'll go to great lengths to tell you everything about the culture from these other planets, their agenda, and it just becomes gets to the point where there's so much speculation that they're saying is truth that I, I find it hard to accept. It makes me to back away. Now, if I was in the government and if my intention was to discredit UFOs, the first thing I would do is get everybody who was speaking like that and make sure they get on the talk show circuit so they would become a danger to the credibility of the overall belief. Um, and I can't help but think that if there are UFOs the government's hiding, then they are part of that kind of a obfuscatory cover-up. Well, which re brings me to the next question. Do you think that the governments of the world are actually covering up or suppressing information about the existence of UFOs? If UFOs exist, yes, I think they would be doing that. Um, I think they, because they, they tend to react out of fear and out of the need to be technologically superior to anyone else. So I think they would probably see it as, a, as an opportunity to increase their own technological abilities and fear that anyone else would, would have that information would, would kind of create the cult of secrecy that a lot of people believe currently exists. What about extraterrestrial or uh, alien abduction scenarios? Don't know. I've read a lot about them. Mm -hmm. um, talked to people who, who have claimed to have abduction experiences. They all seem to have started after a certain point in, in the, the research of, of UFOs. They all have a similarity to them, and there is a, a degree of suspicion that I have about the way in which the investigations through either the regression therapy uh, mm -hmm. or hypnosis are conducted, because many of the transcripts I've read tend, you know, in a courtroom, you would call that leading the witness. Um, so it, it makes me doubt, but it does not make me either believe or disbelieve. I agree with you when it comes to hypnosis, that hypnosis is the least likely form of evidence that anyone, anyone could ever provide because it's not recognized up here in Canada as, uh, as an uh, authenticated uh, way of providing evidence and it's not admissible into court. Right. Um, where do you see, you know, we've been talking about your, your, your great books, we've been talking about comics, we've been talking about books, we've been talking about a lot of things. Um, by the way, congratulations on the Ink, Ink Pot Award. Uh, oh, thank you. What does an honor like that mean to you? Well, it's, it's an incredibly validating thing, and it was a surprise, too. Um, you know, I, I've been fortunate in that I've won a bunch of awards for my writing over the years. The Ink Pot was, is awarded by the, the uh, San Diego Comic-Con, which is the largest Comic-Con in the country, and it's 
a major um, industry event. It w- it's not awarded for a specific work, but overall contributions to to the genre. So I was awarded it for science fiction and fantasy because I've worked quite a lot in those fields. Um, and it makes you realize that what you're doing is reaching people in a way that is, is important to them. And um, it, it, uh, it kind of makes you, it kind of validates this whole, whole crazy job that I have, which is essentially making stuff up for a living and getting paid for it. So I'm a professional daydreamer and I got awarded <laughs> for that. <laughs> so what's next for you, my friend? Well, I'm uh, writing a, uh, the 10th in my Joe Ledger thriller series, which is uh, weird science and special ops and, uh, having fun with that. And uh, Deep Silence comes out next year. Um, I'm editing a couple of anthologies, uh, one on noir horror called Hardboiled Horror, and another one uh, on epic fantasy, kind of like Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called Kingdom's Fall. And then I, uh, I launch into um, my next uh, young adult novel, which is a spinoff of my uh, Rotten Ruin series, which is growing up 14 years after the zombie apocalypse. The first five books in that series did really, really well. I'm, I'm starting a new series uh, with that and uh, having fun. And I'm also dealing with a lot of, uh, uh, of my projects, which have been optioned for television. And we're in various uh, stages of discussion mm-hmm. with uh, movie and TV people. So a lot of, lot of uh, stuff happening all at one time, and it seems to be accelerating. So I'm having a blast. What, what, are, you, what are your final thoughts if, to people who are listening tonight who who after listening to you and uh, getting enthusiastic about the work that you do, and they figure they feel that they have a story to tell and that they'd like to become an author like you, what are your words of wisdom for them? Well, first off, I think everyone has at least one good book in them. Mm-hmm. Everyone, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And I would love to see more people take the opportunity to tell those stories, whether they decide to self-publish, whether they go conventional. It's a great way of knowing what you know sometimes you don't really understand how much you know about a subject until you start writing it down and um i've always said that you know writing one novel is uh, is worth six months of therapy you get a lot of emotions out you solve a lot of your own problems you you look inside and know things so I, i would encourage everyone who wants to write to try it those people however who want to pursue a career in it i recommend that you actually take some classes learn the craft of it but also take some business classes so that you understand the business side of things. Writing is an art. It's that intimate conversation between you and the reader. But publishing is a business whose sole concern is selling copies of art. If you understand both, you have a, a, a lot more opportunity to open the right doors and become successful. So um, that, that's what I would like them to, uh, to take away from this. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for joining to us tonight. And congratulations on all the great work you've done. And we look forward to hearing more about you in the future and uh, seeing you on the little screen as well as the meter screen. So thank you for your time. It is greatly appreciated. Well, thanks, Don. And uh, I really enjoyed this. You asked great questions. Thank you very much, my friend. Exonation, um, I guess this hour has been Jonathan Mayberry. And his website is www.jonathanmayberry.com. And don't forget, Mayberry is M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and we'll be back on the other side of this news break at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as we continue investigating the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology from our broadcast center in beautiful Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. <laughs> 